A creative journey from pop star to director, from Stakabu to Madonna, Breaking Bad to Bowie, and now he's taking on a massive new HBO project. I've always said in my life that I've been unlucky in timing. I, get, I got into music 20 years too late. I would, would have wanted to be in the music in the 70s, you know, and I got into music videos too late. You should have done the music videos in the 80s, you know, and all that. But the one thing I turned out being very lucky with was that I kind of stumbled accidentally into television at a very good time. Director Yuan Renk is my guest on Pop Culture Confidential. Hey everyone, this is Christina Erling Biro. So glad to have you back with us here on Pop Culture Confidential, a Spotify original. So I've long been curious about Swedish filmmaker Johan Renk's ever-changing creative journey. He's moved between commercial and independent. He's gone from a loud life in the spotlight himself to moving behind the camera. And to me, he seemed like someone who's fiercely independent and protective of his work, but can still collaborate with a showrunner or the likes of David Bowie. So Yuan Renk burst on the scene as Stakabu in the early 90s with a huge hit single, Here We Go. He seemed comfortable in front of the camera, but he stepped behind and embarked on a highly successful career as a commercial and video director. He directed Madonna's videos like Nothing Really Matters and Hung Up, as well as Beyonce, Robbie Williams, Robin, and more. He was interested in both high-gloss fashion and music videos and the dark and provocative, like with his first feature, Downloading Nancy. When some interesting American TV series and showrunners came calling, Yuan Renk directed many episodes for seminal shows like Breaking Bad, The Walking Dead, Vikings, and Bloodline. In 2014, when he was working on his TV series, The Last Panthers, they needed music for the opening credits. He and his producing partner decided to do the impossible, to contact the best. David Bowie said yes to working with them. And this would then lead to an incredible collaboration with Bowie as Rank directed his last two videos before he passed away. These films seem to include all the sides, the light, the dark, and the grace. Now he's embarking on his biggest TV project yet as director and co-exec producer of the HBO limited series Chernobyl. It stars Jared Harris, who we know from The Crown, Stellan Skarsgård and Emily Watson, and it's about the tragedy that took place at the nuclear plant in the Ukraine in 1986 and the investigation that followed. Yuan Renk is now in Lithuania filming the series, and I really appreciate him taking some time to talk to me because he literally had a one-day window of opportunity a few days before the commencement of a four-month shoot. I started by asking him about Chernobyl and how this project had come his way. It came to me last summer. I don't really remember exactly what happened. I got an episode of the script. I read it. I was very intrigued, but at the same time, to be honest, I felt a little bit that it was um, brushed by things I've been doing before, but at the same time, I just couldn't let it go because the script was so great. So I asked to, for, for two and three and or so of the episodes, and I read them, and, and then it was like I was completely done for because it's, uh, it's such a, you know, not only is it fabulously written because it really is it's um, written by craig mason i should say craig mason, yeah. what an what an amazing guy what an amazing writer what an amazing everything i have a serious man crush on the guy right? <laughs> good uh, but um the story is just so compelling and and the thing is like it, it just i just felt like this story has to be told we have to do this this is important this is 
it's important for what happened. It's important for, for what, what is to come, so to speak. 1986 was a particularly interesting year. You have um, Gorbachev, you have Perestroika, and this horrible disaster in, in the Ukraine, and, and mirroring sort of where we are today with Trump and Russia. Where are you placing the story in Chernobyl? Is it a political story? What What is your attack on it, so to speak? No, I mean, that's definitely very much touching upon what we're doing, you know. I mean, what we're seeing today is a, is a culture of normalizing lies, you know, and, and a very brazen and kind of audacious approach to fabrication of truths and, and even sort of a, the statements of, uh, I don't care about the experts, I don't care about the, the truth, this is what I think, you know, which is like so daft, it's not even funny, you know. And obviously, the Soviet Union and, 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 uh, was very much... A culture of of lies uh, that sort of was there to serve the agenda of the regime and all that. Uh, so there's a lot of similarities, of course, and uh, and so on. And and this story definitely has a lot to do with that. A lot to do with that. And it's the what Craig always says, which I think is such a great phrase, is that it's about the cost of lies. You know, this is this is a lot what this is is about. You know, so. Uh, this 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 is a limited series. It's a five episode series that sort of you know it's obviously situated around this accident. But the the parameters of it is is very much about the cost of lies and the and the the, the human cost of these lies more than anything else. To be honest, when are you starting filming now, or where are you? When when do you think will it'll be out? We start filming on Tuesday. And uh, then we have four months of, of filming from Tuesday. So we're shooting all through the summer. And I think the intention is for it to be out, you know, early next spring, um, uh, you know, a year from now, basically. So, uh, Well, you've made a big impression in the States as a director. I, while I was researching you now, I just read a critic who wrote about you directing for American television. He wrote, Yuan Renk is now quietly helping to shape the new wave of TV drama which I thought was really interesting. But but something that struck me there was that he said that you were quietly helping. And my impression is that the first part of your career, your music career, your video career, you weren't so quietly shaping things. You were kind of boldly proclaiming. Is there any truth to that? Yeah, well, you know, the folly of youth. <laughs> I, 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 I will happily admit, because I'm at that stage in life, that my you know, that my earlier days was uh, uh, laced with vanity and, uh, you know, a certain narcissism. I don't know. It had to do with my image of myself and, and trying to, I was looking to confer myself to myself, you know, and that's why, you know, the attention seeking aspect of that and all those kind of things that are unhealthy and uh, superficial and, and all of that, you know, shallow stuff. And But again, like with age, other things emerge in you. There's no new types of wisdom. And, and also there's this weird Zen that gets into you when you kind of, you start cutting out all the, the, the noise and, and, and you end up with a, with a more focused and a more heartfelt belief in what it is that's important to you in life, in your work and in your creation or whatever it is. So I would 100%, I'm, I'm, I'm proudly proclaiming my stupidity as a as a younger person <laughs> and I'm equally proudly proclaiming that I try to to shape shift in my life I learn something and I try to I try to kind of embrace that and so on and so forth and then finally I'm a very late bloomer as a family man and I got a bunch of kids now 
it's changed everything for me, you know? Right, right. Am I correct in that your the first video you ever made was actually your own? Oh, yeah, yeah. And is a... that because you wanted to or because no one was, was as good as you were in your own <laughs> mind? <laughs> no, no. It was like my record company gave me a thousand bucks for a video. And I was like, oh, I want uh, Jean-Baptiste bon Mondino to do my videos. And I was like, not ever going to happen. So I was like, well, I just have to fucking do it myself, you know? It, it came to me in a drastic shift in my life because I was trying to do music. I wanted to be a rock star, pop star, whatever you call it. And I love music and I still do for it probably more than anything. But I realized eventually that I wasn't as talented as I wanted to be in music. And since I simultaneously started doing my own videos and videos for friends and that kind of stuff, I felt a strange ease when I got into situations for filming things, everything felt enormously natural to me. The complexities that I was dealing with and trying to compose music and, and trying to deal with that were completely gone. And it felt like an open playing field for me to just, to just play around, you know, and that changed things a lot. Um, and that eventually meant that I, that I kind of killed one dream, which was my dream of music but another dream came from the left field and kind of overwhelmed me and, and led me to where I am. And I, I wouldn't have had it any other way, to be honest. With you. Maybe you got out of your own way. Well, you're absolutely right. That's exactly what happened. You know, some aspect of it, you know, I mean, to, to be honest, if you look upon it in a very sort of uh, pragmatic way, it's like just the decision to, to leave the front of the camera for the backside of it is a, is a pretty big pivotal thing to do mm -hmm, mm -hmm. for the person I was, at least, you know. That meant a lot. And I do want to believe that there was a sigh of relief involved in that also that I didn't realize at the time, but that was, that did occur there also, that there was a sigh of relief of not having to be this thing, but become the other side of that thing. You know? Right. Your international career, it just seemingly went straight to some very big names um, video-wise, to Madonna, to Robbie Williams, people like that. Um, what did you learn about fame? working with these people well i mean to be honest in the in the in the uh the little slight career of music i had i've already kind of brushed up against all of that you know because i had a moment of fame around the music um which kind of put me in those situations i've, I've kind of rubbed rubbed shoulders with it and and, and with, with all that all territory that comes with that and I think that actually was kind of helpful when I was doing videos because a lot of these people, I kind of understood some aspects that you might not have understood if you haven't been there to some, in some way. I, again, I was never in any level of these stars, but I've seen it, you know. And actually, I knew Robbie from, you know, we've done, done Top of the Pops a couple of times and we, and we were very at the same time as Take, take That, you know. So, so we would have met and all that. So, so doing videos for him was like, hey, man. But so what, what do you mean by you knew some of the things? Yeah, the insecurities and the, the, the thing of that everybody kind of seems to want something from you and people, you know, all the fake mm -hmm. people who wants to stand next to you and be close, blah, 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 blah. So the, the one thing to do is like to just treat these celebrities, and this is what I did back then, was, you know, obviously to treat them like just about anyone. And that was always very perceived as something kind of relaxing to them, I felt. I, I don't know. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> I felt that I had a slight adv advantage from coming from from where I came from, both in the fact that I've been in music and also that I kind of knew a little bit about that world. How would you describe yourself as a leader, as a creative director? I would describe myself as 
bold and that I'm only interested in doing things in which my experiences haven't been before. And I get very bored by repetition or sort of doing something that I've, you know, that I felt that I've, I've already been there with my, my experiences, so to speak. Mm -hmm. I'm also very decisive. And I know that people who work for me, you know, the various heads of departments and all that kind of stuff always appreciate the fact that I always know what I want. I have this very strong tendency to daydream and to visualize things. And, and the, and the stuff that happens in my head becomes very crystal clear and is then very easy to relate to other parts, you know. So there's no level of construct there. This is ne never a fabrication. It's always very instinctive and it comes from somewhere. And, and when I've seen it in there, I know exactly what it's going to be. And then it's, then it's very easy to communicate it, you know. How are you if the artist doesn't agree with your vision? Well, I mean, here's the thing. You know, I'm not cut out for making music videos, primarily not sort of commercial music videos. I have very few good experiences with that because most of it, men or not most of it, but a significant part of it was cringy for me. <laughs> it was about kind of fulfilling somebody else's idea of what they wanted, and I have no interest in that, you know. So I had a brief stint with these commercial videos with it, with all the Madonnas and whatever you want to call them, you know. But I soon left that world, and the, and the videos that I did were for small sort of ind independent -y kind of artistic type of bands who would be more interested in something uh, more specific or, or, or more adventurous or whatever, rather than like, hey, here's some flashy, great images for MTV. I was never really good at that at all. One of my favorite videos of yours is the Knife's video, Pass This On. I think it has such a particularly Swedish feel to it. I'm really happy to hear that because for the reason that I like it also. And also because of that was a video that was done completely unhinged you know i i i actually called the band and said hey can i make a video with you guys you know and then i shot that video myself i you know it was one of those i i prepared for that video myself you know because i i've been a couple of years in la um, and i sort of was going on the gravy train there a bit on in advertising making a lot of money doing commercials and at the same time i was, was getting increasingly depressed actually until it came to a point when I realized that this is not me, that everything's broken, I gotta get the fuck out of here. So I left LA and went back to Sweden and, and and I realized that, you know, the only thing I have to do and can do is try to figure out what what it is that makes me happy and what it is in creation and filmmaking that is the thrill of me because I've seen it in moments early when, when I'm doing something and in the moment I'm excited because they let me do whatever I want, you know. <laughs> it kind of was a was a, a consequence of that actually. So it was like um uh, Nobody there to tell me anything. I held the cameras. I did everything. And it, it's nothing to do with ego or prestige. It was just like, I just wanted to be complete. Creative control. Oh, yeah. And, and uninhibited. I read that as a kid, you were actually very um, influenced. Or the first movie you saw was Spielberg's Close Encounters of the Third Kind and that Jaws made a huge impression on you. I don't know why that surprised me a bit, but I'm thinking, I'm, I was wondering if, if that type of... Americana Spielberg storytelling did impact you? Well, I mean, the thing with the uh, Close Encounter was that it was the first time I went to a cinema. We were living in the very north of Norway at the time. I moved a lot around, moved around a lot as a kid. And for me, I think that was my first cinematic experience. I don't know if the movie had any... To be honest, I, I haven't really thought about that movie, but I know that the experience of being in a cinema and seeing something on a screen like that was was incredible for me. 
the thing with the story with Jaws is, I don't know where you read this, but the story with Jaws is, I never saw it as a kid, but I was obsessed with sharks. And I read the book, and the book was fascinating. The book was great. Amazing characters for a kid like me. I was like 10, 11 years. Probably completely inappropriate because there's a lot of sex and stuff in that book. But my parents went and saw Jaws, so I forced my mother to tell the entire film pretty much scene by scene to me when they came back from the from the movie screening this was in Tromsø in Norway also, also actually so um and uh, so so that's what it was so the first film that really changed my world was the exorcist actually mm, i love the exorcist <laughs> yeah it's still one of my favorite films actually i still think it's such a brilliant movie on on so it's so complex it's unfortunately kind of being diminished into a horror film which it isn't it's a, it's a very intelligent psychological thriller um obviously for uh, but but that film and the and the the plights of the characters and the and the sort of the darkness and the and the light of some of these characters and the non the complexity of their their nature and all of that kind of stuff is something that when it, it was the first time I realized I think I was just about old enough to under to see a film that had layers to it that that actually appealed to other aspects than just sort of hey entertain me you know right and talk about sub you know the working woman and and guilt and spirituality and children I mean all those things in that all the subtexts are seven eight layers of them in the exercise that's exactly what it is and that, those were the things that i remember picking up on so so that was interesting for me to understand that hey my mind can embrace these kind of uh, concepts you know and i think that's that's a coming of age thing that is really interesting and that film just happened to happen right there in my life Right. Well, let's talk about something beautiful with a lot of darkness, and that's Breaking Bad and, and Vince Gilligan. M much of the credit, of course, goes to, to him as a creator and showrunner, helming the first episode and kind of setting the tone for you, the future directors. Um, how would you describe his way of doing that, of setting the tone, and both in terms of storytelling and as a leader? Unique, playful, bold, uh, curious childish yet uh, savvy uh, a fascination for the dark but at the same time an understanding of the human you know the, the man is uh, absolutely brilliant you know of course and and you know the proof is in the pudding there I mean he did much more than set the tone he he, he championed the whole thing there you know and it's I learned a lot from it, you know, from from Vince. I learned a lot from Mike Slovis, who's the DP there. And I learned, learned a lot, obviously, from Brian Cranston and Aaron Paul and all these people who were like, uh, uh, you know, it was an amazing thing to be to have a tiny, tiny part in. One of the directors I really, really like, Michelle McLaren, who seems to like you as well she she mentioned somewhere that she liked using the wide lens on breaking bad and you used a long lens can you explain what the difference in in tone yeah yeah i mean for sure and again michelle became a great friend during those breaking bad years and i, I she's an amazing person i have such massive admiration and respect for her because she was a director and a producer and again this curious playful crazy person that I just love, you know? Uh, yeah, here's my, th that was the thing. When I first came to Breaking Bad and they were all shooting these kind of 18 mil dutched angles, low angles, looking up. And it's like, in my instinct, the worst I know. I like long observational cinematic stuff and they like kind of 
music video stuff to be honest mm-hmm. so I came into that i was like come on guys we can't be doing this you know we gotta we gotta sort of but i was obviously wrong because that was part of the language of this of this show or this tv series so what happened was that i decided to myself pretty instantly you know what i'm, I'm gonna i'm gonna go with this i'm gonna let mike who's the who's the dp i mean here's the thing with tv the dp is a very important creative factor there because he's the one constant in the visual side of things, like you know, the director of photography, right? Yeah. yeah. So, so they, they are in a very important and, and relevant position there, you know? And so, and, and Mike is this really, you know, brilliant, cool guy, you know? So I said, I said to myself, I'm just going to go with it. I'm going to try and make these frames and make these shots the way I think that they like. And it became a very interesting exercise. And what it also became was, I think I realized like, I guess this is what they do at film school. I was thinking, like uh-huh. trying things that you're that is out of your comfort zone and all that kind of stuff. You know, I remember watching The Sopranos, and I remember how how certain episodes would mean much more to me from reasons that I didn't really understand until I figured out. Obviously, it had to do with who was directing. I mean, and, and you know, uh, Steve Buscemi. Every time a good direct, uh, episode came up, I found that it was Steve Buscemi who directed it, you know, because it had a different kind of humor in it and it was more weird and all that kind of stuff. These kind of things happened. And and, and that's what it should be. You know, that's there's a breath of fresh air in, in directors and TV series like that. And of course, you've worked with a very many big series from Vikings to Walking Dead. But I remember a couple of years ago, I talked to you and I know that you were very excited and very um, involved in Bloodline. Can you tell me a little bit about how that sort of brought out your creativity in that series? It just felt very Swedish. It even felt Bergman or Lars Norén or whatever you want. Those, right. those kind of aspects of of these kind of anguish, you know, the, the stuff we grew up in in Sweden, this kind of dark, anguish-ridden family secrets and uncomfortable uh, dynamics between various family members and I think I'm still of of a generation in which there was this, this a hard line between not not in my family, but you know in, in the culture is a hard line between kids and adults. You know, when I was a kid, and there was this kind of that kind of thing is so interesting. Now now it's a different dynamics in parenting and with kids and all that kind of stuff. But so with Bloodline, I just was immensely interested in the whole kind of psycho- psychology of it immediately. You know, and and I very soon started having these very long conversations with. With Todd Kessler, who was, was one of the creators, who, who's, who became a very, very close and dear friend of mine, and he actually lives a few blocks away from me in, in Brooklyn. But there was all this, these deep, it, I immediately got so interested in the, 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 the very, very huge investment in characters and backstories and, and, and sort of all these kind of thingies that makes you understand um, what, what trajectories can and cannot do and, and all that kind of stuff, you know. Well, you were talking about that you sort of left videos behind you, and you were also mentioning that you yourself called when you wanted to do the knife. Someone else that you called when you wanted to collaborate was, was of course, David Bowie. And that collaboration turned into something, I mean, I can't even put words on it, but incredibly unique and, and, and the last things that he did. What did he see in you creatively? Yeah, you tell me. Or nobody can ever answer that question, can they? Oh, I think you can. <laughs> no, I mean, this is what happens. I, I, I'd done a, a limited series for Canal Plus and Sky called The Last Panthers. And I had, a, again, yet another formidable, amazing memory for lifetime of experience in creating, you know, a, you know, Jack Thorne wrote a 
350-page script that we shot like a movie. It was like literally shooting a 350-page movie, you know. And when this was done, I really wanted somebody very special to write the, the title score for it. And and my friend Svana Gisla, who is my partner in the UK for kind of all sorts of weird ventures, she said, you know, why don't we check with David Bowie? And I was like, you are off your fucking... <laughs> That's audacious. <laughs> Uh, but but that's her also. She Swana is like she's crazy and audacious and has no fear. And we did. And he said, "Yeah, I'm interested." And it ended up with me having a conversation. I sent him some stuff. Uh, I sent him a you know a rough cut of an episode because we were that far down the road and so on and so forth. And that's what happened. So he wrote a piece of music, and then uh, you know a month or two later, I don't even remember really the timings of things. He calls me in New York, say, "Hey, I, I have." This piece of music is now ten minutes long. You want to come and hear it, and and that was Black Star, you know. And from there on, it just kind of went on with a lot of weird twists and turns, of course. And then he wanted you to make the video um, for both that and, and Lazarus. Um, I have to admit that I have I had a hard time watching it just because it made me sad the fact that he died just a couple of days after you guys were done. Until I started thinking of. Bowie and the way I always thought of him historically, that he had such an incredible sense of humor um, in everything he did. He was he was just so ahead of his time that you, sometimes you couldn't see that humor until after. Then it was easier for me to watch this incredible work you did together. Did, did you feel that he, that way as well, when you were creating the visuals for this? I mean, 100%. Here's a true story. In Lazarus, you know, the very last thing he does is he steps into this closet. closet right. That was never an, 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 a part of the initial story. It was, we were sitting around watching the monitor, and I, somebody, I think it was Jimmy King, who, who worked for him, with him, you know, this very brilliant man, said like, hey, David, what about if you should just sort of end this video with going back into the closet? And, and David started giggling, saying like, yeah, that would be awesome. David Bowie has gone back into the closet, you know, and and you know, and and it, and it all was a joke. That bit was like something he he thought was very very funny, and it and and but obviously he saw the other aspect of it. It was not just for a laugh, but everything all the time had to do with the mixture again between the dark and the light, and and his sense of humor was obviously. Uh, you know, there's a lot of better people to witness about it, but in, in, in the short encounter I had with him was like, he's the most, the most amazing person I've ever met. And what I say to to fans who come up to me because you know who are who have a, a relationship in their life that is much much stronger than one that I had before working with him, I say that everything everything you wanted to think about him uh, is true. And and I and it and it is true, you know. That's the, that's the kind of person he was. No, yeah, and I don't mean that the videos were f- laugh out loud funny. That's not what I mean. But that he had he brought something very intellectual, um, and not just darkness. One hundred percent agree, and and it's true. And, and and a lot of things, you know, in Black Star, this chick has a tail. That was something he insisted on. And 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 you know, for me, it's like in any kind of creative collaborative process, it's not about the whys. And, 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 you know, the reasons for things. But I, I remember asking him honestly, just sort of casually, I said, so what's the deal with the tail? And he goes like, sexual, you know? And, and there's these kind of things that, that just cracked me up. And he was, you know, 
again, it's there's an impressionism in everything, and I believe in impressionism, and I think we see too little of it in general, and that's what I like with working with him. We we worked in silence, you know, and there, there's not about the, the whys or reasons or what does it mean or anything like that, because it's all in the eye of the beholder in the end anyways. So I could, whenever I make some, you know, the knife with you, you just spoke about what you, you know, perceived as very Swedish because you came from abroad. That was never my intention with the video, but that was what you saw in it, and that makes it uh, has the exact same value as what I ever had with it, and that's what what is I think is key in in all creation is what that you have to leave some space for the eye of the beholder. You know? Right, but the fact that he did pass away so shortly after, of course, it opened up to even more than usual in in Bowie's case, immense speculation and analyzing and searching for clues about what he was going through and feelings about life and death. Did he talk to you about that? He knew that this was going to happen, that fans were going to be searching and and looking. And and, I mean, if you put an astronaut in the beginning of of a video like this, um, you're going to have some connotations. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, he was very aware of that, and I think everything he did was a, a transmission that he understood the ramifications of. You know, I mean, we did have, you know, in the astronaut, there's a skull, and that skull is kind of ornated with jewels. Mm-hmm. Um, it was something that I was pushing for, and he was very reluctant to that because he felt that he would then kind of put himself in a higher place. And I said, well, I am putting you in a higher place. I said, your your skull shall be ornate with jewels, and then he chuckled a little bit. And then, <laughs> have it you know but but i think he was very aware of all these these things um of course um and and he enjoyed it and and, and it's part of his of him as an artist it, it's like a, the whole the his whole thing was a massive massive installation i think with, with a lot of incarnations and different iterations that only he kind of knew the origin and the of but they come to mean so much to millions of people you know when in the process did you know that he was ill uh, to be honest very early on mm-hmm. uh, he uh, he called me you know very early on that summer um, and and said i need to skype with you and we skyped i was in sweden i was in my country i was in sweden and he called me and said i have something i have to tell you and then he told me that i'm very ill and i'm gonna i will pass away he said and I was, I thought he was honestly, I, you know, it's incomprehensible. I thought he was joking. Mm-hmm. Uh, I couldn't even grasp it. I didn't know what to say. It was a very, very awkward thing. Yeah. And I, and I also couldn't help thinking, why are you telling me this? You know, uh, because he was also very adamant about how secret it was. And, he, and then he said like, yeah, I honestly don't really want to tell you, but I kind of have to because we're working right now and I don't know what my availability will be. And I, don't, I'm, I honestly don't know if I'm around for the shoot of the video. He said, you know, oh. this- Did this change your thinking in terms of, just the, you know, what it was going to be about in general? It did in the beginning. It did in the beginning uh, because uh, I couldn't help thinking about it. But my thing is, I'm, I'm, I'm like a, I'm, I'm, I'm a, an incurable optimist. And I think very quickly, you know, only weeks after this message, because he would, you know, immediately revert to our, or, 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 you know, our normal conversations. He would, you know, slightly joke about things related to his illness and, and his appearances and stuff like that. But in my mind, what happened in my mind was 100% that, okay, so he's ill, he has cancer, he will take, you know, do the radiation and the, and, and, and the chemo and all that kind of stuff. And then he will beat it like a lot of people do, you know. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one month later, I was 100%, I, was, I didn't even cross my mind, you know. So when, 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 the mess, when I got the message that night that he had passed away, 
I, I, I was completely floored. I was shocked. I had no idea because I, in my mind, he was, he was all good. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It seems like he taught you a lot in that short time about sort of life and art and, and did you learn anything about how to approach death? Mm, interesting question. Um, I don't know how to approach that in any capacity, to be honest. Well, we uh, don't as people really, right? But that's why if you spend time with someone, working with someone who's told you this. Well, I think what I learned from him was a renewed belief in, in amazing people. And I, and I learned also uh, about, uh, you know, being bold and taking risks in your creation and all that kind of stuff. Um, I had... I think it was one of the most kind of fruitful collaborations I had because of, of a mutual respect. I know it was mutual because he told me, um, and I'm not, I'm not saying that to toot my own horn. I'm just saying that, that it was a, a fundamentally, um, you know, normally, there, there was no games being played. There was nothing. It was just two human beings conversing and discussing things in terms of, of, of collaborating around a creative project. And again, I'm not a very good collaborator because I don't really believe in collaboration. But in this particular case, this was a, a, a very good example of, of why collaborations are fruitful and, and, and important and, 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 and can mean things, you know. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I, I learned a lot, uh, but I, I think I learned a lot on a spiritual level more than anything. He would. He was very, uh, you know, he's a very charming and, and nice person. And it, it became personal also because we spent so much time doing this. So we'd be sort of having sort of random text messaging about random things, you know, the, the Bataclan shooting and what else it might have been that just kind of, uh, and, and he would say, you know, we have to keep on being positive for the children, he said. And, you know, all these kind of beautiful things that just, was heartfelt even at the at the time you know yeah. so yeah it just seems when you talk about it and when you see his performance in your movies that there's just seemed like very little fear and a lot of grace but i could be he has no fear and has a, and only grace and he is uh, you know that's that's the, that's the way that's you know yeah he's he's he's, he's absolutely an elevated amazing person on all levels I just have, I mean, this could be super far-fetched, but I was thinking the Black Star dancers, they, I, I was noting that they have sort of the same jerky movements in their dance that they had in one of your early videos, the, the Nothing Really Matters video. I, I mean, probably it's not related at all, but I was just wondering if that was something you had any meaning in. There is a certain relation, you know, that, that in the Nothing Really Matters. I'm very interested in dance. And nothing really matters was a, you know, was a Buddha dance uh, kind of experience. And when, when we were doing this, David, turns out, is also extremely interested in dance. So I found this amazing choreographer that I wanted to work with. And uh, David said, like, do you think we can come up with a dance that kind of resembles something like when you look at very old cartoons, this is interesting. When you look at an old Popeye cartoon or something like that, when somebody in the frame is not doing something, he's just standing still. But because of the technique back then in the stop motion and all of this, so rather than just being a static frame of somebody, they probably kind of looped two or three frames together just so that a person would not look like a flat frame, you know? So they would stand still and just have this weird jerk around it. And I said, hell yeah, this is Budo. 
and and that's kind of where we started it, you know. So um, there is there is a and that's what you used in Madonna, the Buddha. Yeah, yeah, yeah that right, was Buddha. Right. So there is a relation um, for sure, you know. Uh, even though this was an invented uh, dance sprung out of a Popeye movie. Popeye right, film. right. Well, interesting. You were mentioning earlier that sort of late in life, you you started a family and and things changed. But um, the fact that you have three small kids, I think they're under the age of five. And has that changed you creatively? And I don't mean just in terms of ego. I mean in 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 really creatively. Yeah, it has undoubtedly. Uh, for me, what happened when I had kids was a, a number of new com- emotional compartments opened up in my in my brain uh, or in my soul or whatever you want to call it. And, and new types of feelings would emerge that I don't think I really ever had before um, of various kinds, everything from love related stuff to stuff uh, related to fear and worry. Uh, and also to anger, you know, you know, I don't think I would understand anger the way I would understand anger. If, if somebody would ever do something to my child, you know, I would right. literally go, fire extinguisher in irreversible on the guy or, or you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So all, so, so all of a sudden you have a much wider frequency range in, in feelings. Um, and I'm 100% sure that that has helped me, um, in, or, or aided me or guided me in what I do, because all of a sudden it's much more important to, to kind of connect emotionally with what you're doing and, and that it feels right rather than make sense or, or, or looks good or is, you know, all of that kind of stuff. Right. So, so that has most definitely happened. Uh, the other thing that has happened is a curation, curation of what you do because, um, I don't ever want to do anything that I don't think my kids would you know, feel proud about watching one day uh, when I'm gone or whatever, you know, which means that you, you kind of start picking and choosing your projects differently and and they become much more, you only, are, you, you, you stop doing anything crappy and you're only interested in, in relevant, meaningful things that, that will enrich in you. And then thirdly, in my line of profession, most work I do is equals to being gone from my family. Mm-hmm. So it's be fucking important for me to rather go and and sit in, in some shithole place to film something than be with my family, you know? Right. So, so all these kind of things come together. I'm certain has had a huge impact on, on my profession. And, and, my, and you can bring them all with you now. Exactly. No, but I mean, we're in Lithuania now. The whole family's here because the kids are small enough to to you know you can travel around with them. We're we're we have a fourth baby on the on the way that is going to arrive. Oh, congratulations! Most likely being born here in Lithuania, um, and that's you know okay. So we're going to have an Eastern European family member, you know, at one point. That's wonderful. Yeah. Um, lastly, what is your? I know that Chernobyl is sounds like a really big dream project for you but do you have another other dream projects that you haven't attained yet i I really would like to do some stage stuff i i I would really be interested in working on theater and that's actually something that's in discussion right now i can tell you more about this at a later stage maybe when we go a little further but i i i'm just this i have this urge of trying you know, I, my, all my tools in terms of performances and actors and, and characters and all that stuff is so much related to how the camera can help bring this out. And now I would I would love to try what happens in, in kind of 
you know, creating these kind of feelings when you when you don't have the aid of a close up or of sound design to the same extent or whatever it might be, you know. So I'm, that that is something that I'm I'm kind of slightly obsessed with with wanting to try, you know. But other than that, yeah, we'll see. Um, I I think the next thing I also want to do is. Uh, you know, kind of complete the circle, and I really want to go back and, and do a movie now. I, I've stopped doing episodical TV. I pretty much stopped doing pilots also, to be honest. I, I love this limited series format because it's like, it's the best of both worlds. Uh, but what I'm interested in is the difficulties of making a movie because you have to be so much more precise. You have to cut with a much sharper knife, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you literally have those, you know, 100 and... 120 pages script and 120 minute time to really get it all in there. T- television is more forgiving, you know, it is. And you can also toss something in there. Oh, let's, we got to put a scene of him crying there so we know he's a vulnerable guy. Okay, let's do that. But in, in a movie, you know, every scene car- has to carry its weight. And I'm, you know, that's 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 what I really want to do next, actually. So. Well, I can't wait to see Chernobyl. Very looking forward to that and your future projects. Thank you so much, Yuan, for for taking your time with me. Thank you very much. It was a pure pleasure. And that's our show. Thank you so much to Yuan Rank, and thank you so much for listening. You can follow us on Instagram at Pop Culture Confidential and Twitter at Pod Pop Culture, and make sure to join us next week only on Spotify. Hi there, I'm Heather Drago, and I'm Sarah Saunders. We host the podcast. That's a hard no about saying no and setting boundaries. So you can become that true and empowered you that this world needs. Saying no isn't just okay. It's the key to living an authentic, fulfilling life. I'm a licensed professional clinical counselor. So while this podcast is in no way a replacement for one-on-one therapy, I suppose I know what I'm talking about. I'd say so. We talk about learning to say no and set healthy boundaries and how it impacts mental health, physical health, relationships, parenthood, and more. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit our website, hardnopodcast.com. We're here to help you find your no and say it unapologetically. That's a hard no.